my nephew, he always said, yo, man, me and my friends want to make a record. We want to make a record. And I like, you know, I didn't really take them too serious. But we they never take saying, our nephews too nah, serious. Nah, nah, because, you know, we understand you're going through the motion. You know, you're in school and everything. You, you know what I'm a part of, so you want to join on, but I'm not knowing that you're serious. That's the legendary cool DJ Red Alert. You heard him in the last episode. If you haven't heard that story, go back and listen now. The conversation he's talking about here, it happened back in the late 1980s. And even after Red said no, his nephew kept sweating him kept insisting that him and his friends wanted to make a record. Finally, Red was like, fuck it, okay, let's see what you got. And he found a place for them to go and cut a few tracks. This studio is way out there in Coney Island, off of Neptune Avenue, right. behind the projects. And um, that's where they used to go there and start recording. And they came up with an idea of a song that... um. I was saying that my older brother used to always say, he say Jemprowski. 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 When they offer, otherwise, he's talking about, you know, the male's dominant situation, you know? He's talking uh, about the, male, the male's member. Yeah, no. His Jemprowski. Jemprowski, you know? I'm trying to be as polite as I can in front of the lady. <laughs> you don't so, have to be polite. Oh, okay. Well, you know, hey, I, I was raised that way. So, Jemprowski was, was, was code for penis. Right. Thank you, sir. <laughs> so, um, here it is. Mike, who is my nephew, he took that idea from what uh, my brother used to do, and he said, let's go do a record called Jimbrowski. And then they became the group known as? The Jungle Brothers. The Jungle Brothers. Now here we have a theory that makes me kind of weary. It's a humorous matter that makes my eyes teary. Jimbrowski. Yeah, that's what they call it. The thing's so big, you need a U-Haul or haul it. Yeah. And it came out of here. So now, they're coming out. That's what it is. So, as they came out, and they start getting hired to do different gigs in different places. So now I need a road manager. Who you think I pick? Who did you pick? Chris Lighty. From Gimlet Media and the Loudspeakers Network, I'm Reggie Osei, and this is Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty. In the last episode, Chris, along with the Violator crew, became a part of DJ Red Alert's entourage. That meant that they had to carry Red's gear and slap any pushy promoters who tried to step to him. In return, Chris and his friends got into the club for free, and they could impress girls by being like, yo, girl, I'm with a DJ. But then, in 1988, Red Alert offered Chris this road manager gig, even though his only prior experience was carrying other people's records and stealing other people's girls. I sense something about Chris with his character, you know, about how he come across with a business sense. And when him and I talk, I listen to his lingo, and when I listen to his lingo, it's like, this guy got something there, more than what you expect. Yeah, he cocky, he's arrogant, he ready to go ahead and put his hands up and everything, but behind that, there's something else I see about him when I have conversation with him, and I see how he moves, and I see what he does. He didn't know it at the time, but this was a big moment for Chris. He'd go on to become one of the most powerful men in hip-hop, but that would not have been possible without paying his dues as a road manager. 
And Chris had a lot to learn. Right now, he's still a kid. A kid who had no idea how to take his first act on the road. And the Jungle Brothers? They were just kids, too. My tasty technique tantalizes your taste as my rhymes rock and roll right through this place. It was that bragging and boasting. That's Mike G, and this is Africa Baby Bam. I'm the MC on the mic who's hard to chase. I'm the ace in the place kicking rhymes in your face. Together with DJ Sammy B, they were the Jungle Brothers, and there was a lot more to them than rhymes about the Bozak. The JBs are one of the first rap groups to fuse jazz and house music with hip-hop. Their shit was eclectic, but they were street too. Peep how they came up with their name. I'll never forget, I was at my dad's house. He lived in Queens, left Rack City. A lot of cats don't know there was a lot of gangs. There was a lot of drug gangs in Queens at that time. And where I lived at, I had a, a view of the avenue. And me, we like, we going back and forth like, yo, we got to get a name. What's our name going to be? Yo, I, I listen. It was like, I mean, it was pandemonium in the streets. I look out the window. I was like, yo, it's like a jungle out here right now. It's like, yo, they wilding in the streets. Bam was like, oh. This is the concrete jungle. I was like, yo, jungle posse. And I was like, mm, posse's going to be kind of played out. He's like, jungle something. It's like, it like we said at the same time, jungle, jungle brothers. Because we brothers. And that was it. From that day. The Jungle Brothers and Chris had a lot in common. They grew up in the same kind of neighborhoods. They were all young. They were all ambitious, and they all sensed that hip-hop could take them places. Where? They weren't exactly sure. But they didn't care as long as they could contribute to the culture. And it didn't hurt that they could meet some chicks and make a few dollars along the way. Wherever they'd be going, the journey would not be glamorous. To get from venue to venue, there was no private jet, no Benz, no limo, not even a tour bus. All they had was Chris's hoopty. The Corsica. The Chevy Corsica. Never forget it. (laughs) Who fits eight people in a Corsica? (laughs) Chris Lighty. Right. Word. And how did it smell, man? (sighs) Who knows? (laughs) Like arse. Smell like arse. Smell like arse, right? (laughs) Oh, man. It smelled like after like eight dudes rolling up in there, a couple of white castles. Oh. Woo. Some farts, Goodness some farts gracious. got loose, man. Oh man, let me tell you. Talk about starting at the bottom. And for real, that's where Chris was at at this moment. People like to fantasize about touring with a band, but they're way off. This road manager gig is a cross between being a janitor, a babysitter, and a bag man. You gotta wrangle your artists, get them to the venue on time, make sure they're not too high to go on stage. As for the bagman bit, back in the day, promoters would pull all kinds of shit to avoid giving you that cash. Sometimes they flat out refuse to hand over the bag. Other times, they pay you, then send somebody over to your hotel room later on that night to try to stick you. It was like a hood version of Mad Max or some shit. And Chris had to figure out how to handle this stuff on his own. There was no manual for this shit, no training. He was making it up as he went along. And one of the first things he learned was a simple lesson in economics. More shows equals more money. We could rack up on a good weekend, 10 shows. New York, Philly, New Jersey. No exaggeration now. We drove to Georgia and came back and did another show. Virginia, D.C., South Carolina, North Carolina, a bit of Florida, Boston, you know, upstate New York. 
all these trips. We broke some records. <laughs> for real. These road trips with Chris were the inspiration for the song, JB's Coming Through. And if you listen closely, you'll actually hear Chris getting a shout out. It's Uncle Sam, Mike G, Baby Bam, Road Manager Chris, five thousand booming watts, sound system, state of the art, travel lightly, close pack neatly, strapped with the baby bam, baby bam, BC. I was just basically describing, like this is the road call, this is who's getting in the car and who's going to the club to do the show, and this is what it sounds like. It's a big five thousand booming watts, you know. So it was like. The story was telling you about the night. JB's coming through. Like, we're going to be here. We're going to be there. Because that's what we was doing. We was everywhere every weekend. So that's how he got a shout out on that record. Y'all know who? Who? And that was how I first heard about Chris Lighty. The Jungle Brothers' second album, Done by the Forces of Nature, was one of my favorite albums back then. And I heard them shouting out this guy called Baby Chris. And there were pictures of him in the liner notes too. I was like, if he's down with the Jungle Brothers, this cat must know what he's doing. And I was right. Not long after he started road managing the JBs, Chris took on his next act. It was a group of young rappers from Queens. Maybe you've heard of them. They're called the Tribe Called Quest. And they gave Lighty a shout out on one of their songs too. What's Chris Lighty if he wasn't such a baby? What is a woman if she didn't say maybe? Baby laid down. Tribe blew up in 1990 when they dropped their debut album, People's Instinctive Travels and the Paths of Rhythm. It went gold. And it looked like Chris's career was going in the same direction. It wasn't just fans of Tribe and the Jungle Brothers that were becoming familiar with the name Chris Lighty. He was getting mentioned at the offices of Def Jam Records, too. They wanted to talk to Chris about joining their team. It's hard to overstate how big a deal that would have been at the time. When Chris and I were coming up, the words Def Jam were the gold standard in hip-hop. I was such a fan that I used to go to the record stores and buy LPs simply because they had the Def Jam logo on them, regardless of whether I heard the music or not. And that's because Def Jam always stayed true to the streets, and that meant everything to me. To understand their importance to the culture, you got to understand what the first early breakout rap record sounded like back in the 1970s before Def Jam existed. Here's Wonder Mike, Hank, and Master G, the Sugar Hill Gang. That's Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. I fucking hated that song. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. Sounded fake to me, man. Like I, I grew up on the on the real stuff where you heard MCs like spitting in the park, you know what I'm saying? Spitting like in the projects, like real MCs like Grandmaster Cass and Melly Mellon. And when I first heard Rappers Delight on the radio, it sounded so squeaky clean, so sanitized. It, it was fake. It had none of that grime. It had none of that grit. I mean, imagine somebody being a punk fan, like somebody growing up on on the Sex Pistols and Sid Vicious. And then they hear Billy Idol. And I'm a fan of Billy Idol, but hearing Billy Idol and somebody telling you like this is the epitome of punk rock, this shit was fake, man. I preferred that raw hip-hop sound. And I wasn't the only one. There was this upstart party promoter from Queens who decided to start a record label dedicated to hip-hop. The records that I made were just records I thought they sounded like the club as opposed to sound like the records. And in the club, we played breakbeats a lot. 
and the breakbeats were the records we wanted to rap over. So why are we making records that we rapped over R&B? That's Russell Simmons. Together with his co-founder, an NYU student named Rick Rubin, they created Def Jam. Rick and Russell wanted to make the kind of music that kids like me wanted to hear. We hated fucking R&B. Michael Jackson, Prince, all of them, we didn't give a fuck. We hated them because we were alternative in nature. We had to do something of our own. And that's what hip-hop was. Hip-hop was a rebellion to what was given to us as black people. Def Jam dismantled everything that acts like the Sugar Hill Gang represented. Gone with the corny rhymes and the glossy production. Their motto was to reduce, not produce. Rick and Russell wanted to be the anti-rapper's delight. Just listen to the difference between that and a true rap classic, LL Cool J's Rock the Bell. LL Cool J is hard as hell. Battle anybody, I don't care, you tell. I excel, they all fell. Gonna cancel double L, Well, that was the intention, to give people what they wanted versus what uh, everybody's polish was, you know, and let's make some stuff that really represents the streets that we come from, the sound that we liked. Def Jam was the first authentic hip-hop label, created by the culture, for the culture. They were also the first label to really take hip-hop acts seriously as artists. For a kid like me, they defined what rap music was and what it could be. After being launched by Rick and Russell in 1984, within the next several years, the label would go on to release some of the most important tracks in hip-hop history. 1986, The Beastie Boys, No Sleep Till Brooklyn. No Sleep Till! 1988, Slick Rick, Children's Story. Once upon a time, not long ago. 1990, Public Enemy, Fight the Power. Fight the Power, and that's the year when Def Jam, the biggest name in the game, noticed Chris Lighty. Coming up after the break, Chris meets Russell, but their first meeting isn't your typical business introduction. Instead, snakes, yes, real-life snakes, and cocaine are involved. Keep listening. Welcome back to Mogul. One of the most powerful men at Def Jam was this cat named Lior Cohen. He was Russell's right-hand man, and he wanted to recruit Chris. Lior Cohen got his start in the music business, road managing Run DMC. By the late 1980s, he'd established himself as the number two guy at Def Jam. Lior is this tall, Israeli-American guy, kind of looks like Lurch from the Adams Family, and he had a fierce reputation for being cutthroat. Here's hip-hop author Dan Charnas to explain Lior. Somebody once told me that their memory of Lior is that he was always chewing on something, like the pens on his desk. Towels and stuff like yeah. that. And so those jaws are always moving. And um, that's an image of Lior that's really instructive. He had this insatiable hunger, essentially. Uh, and that even when there was nothing to be gained by hunger, he would still consume. Lior thought Lighty would be a great get for Def Jam. He'd heard about the work he'd done with the Tribe and the Jungle Brothers, and he figured he'd be a perfect fit. So he invited Chris to meet Russell Simmons, the most powerful man in hip-hop at the time. But this meeting, it did not go as planned. Dan Charnas again. When you want to meet with Russell, you go to where Russell is, and Russell's not in the office. Russell's at the club. So he takes him to Nell's, 
And Chris has seen a lot of things in his life. He's seen guns, he's seen knives, he's seen fights, he's seen the Bronx, but he's never seen anything like what he's seeing at Nell's. Nell's back in the day was one of the flyest clubs. You had to be somebody, know somebody, or stand out to get in. I used to get in, but only because I had a fly girlfriend. I'm going to let Chris Lighty tell the rest of the story from here. And I got to say, I'm so hyped for you to hear his voice. Chris didn't give many recorded interviews in his life, but we managed to get our hands on an archive recording of him telling longtime Def Jam publicist Bill Adler about the time he first met Russell Simmons and Nels. Now, bear with me here because the tape is a little distorted in places. Okay, here's Chris Lighty. I had never been in a club with white people. I was like, this shit is crazy. Russell's is sniffing cold. It's fucking bananas. I, I used to go to the SNS club with old school drug dealers and all of that and the Roxy and Funhouse. So Roxy, there might have been two white people out of 2,000 people. You know, Funhouse was all Puerto Ricans and maybe a few black people. I went to Nell's and there was probably five black people and nothing but white people. People were still allowed to bring animals into the club and all types of crazy shit like that. Snakes and all types of stuff. They were walking around with snakes and it was crazy that night. Maybe it was just the one night that I shouldn't have met Russell. But it was the one night that I met Russell. People had snakes around them. Coke was everywhere. Too many white girls. And And Russell's talking real fast and making no sense. You remember any of this? I was high as fuck, so I probably didn't remember. That's Russell Simmons again. A lot of industry people hung there, too. It was not just me and Snakes. So that's going to be an interview, right? The whole interview? Yeah, so it's not me and Snakes. It's me and the head of fucking Sony Records, you know, the head of, uh, you know, whoever my partners were and whoever the future partners of our, our artists would be. Regardless of what the snake-to-human ratio was, Chris looked around at all of this and decided that this scene was definitely not for him. So he basically tells Russell, I'm not fucking with you, and walks out. Naturally, that pissed Russell off. So I don't know what, you know, what made him say that, but I can tell you that that's not what a manager says. And I'd like to celebrate him as much as possible, but I can't say that that's a trait that I would be, you know, want a manager to exude, to be able to say, I'm not fucking with you because there are white people and snakes in a room. Or because, of, you know, that we were in a place that was, you know, odd to him. His job is to go in every room and open up every door and work with every person who can help every artist. Despite the meeting going south, Lior was still determined to bring Lighty to Def Jam. The young manager was raw for sure. He needed to be polished up, but the kid knew how to make money, and all of his acts were blowing up. So Lior keeps sweating him, hoping he'll change his mind. Lior calls me the next day and the next day. says, what's up? You gonna take my offer? And then a couple of weeks later, I come back down to 298 Lips Street and go, you know what? I want to learn. So I'm going to take you up on your offer. Well, what persuaded you besides his persistence? I mean, it was at the, at the end of the day, I was still fans. I was a fan of Def Jam. In a few years, Chris had gone from hauling crates for red to driving the Jungle Brothers all over America in a hoopty to getting a job at Def Jam, the Harvard of hip-hop. He was playing the game on a new level now, which meant Chris had to play by different rules. 
Africa Baby Bam told me this story that gets to the heart of the push and pull between Chris's old world and his new one, between the violators and the executives Chris now rubs shoulders with, between the Bronx and the boardroom. This story went down in 1989. It was Queen Latifah's birthday party, and Latifah, she's huge at the time, so this isn't any ordinary birthday party. It's this glamorous red carpet industry event. Anyone who's anyone in hip-hop is going to be there, including Chris Lighty, the new Def Jam hire. So Africa and Chris are lined up outside, and there's a big crowd waiting to get in. And Lighty asked about the guest list to the lady that was standing behind the rope with the clipboard. Chris and Africa's name are not on the list. And Lighty was like, oh, come on. This is Jungle Brothers. He got a little pushy. The other people waiting to get in were not impressed. A group of guys in particular were like, yo, who the fuck is this guy? And then they shoved Lighty. So then he pushed them back. And then the shank came out and cut Lighty. It happened so fast, all I could see was that his skin was cut and he was bleeding. And he turned to me and he looked at me and he said, oh shit, am I cut? I said, yeah, you cut, but it's a little, it's just a little slit. He said, I'm bleeding. I said, yeah, but it's just a little bit. And he just looked at me and then we backed up and he just reacted like, yo, what the fuck did you do? You know, he was pissed. And then all hell broke loose. The cut might have been small, but it was deep. Blood was pouring down Lighty's face, and he was out for revenge. So he rounds up his old friends, the Violators. Barges through security and chases down the guy who slashed him. He runs into the club, and that sparks this huge brawl. This is a fancy place, remember? And inside, there's this big-ass aquarium. Lighty grabs the guy who cut him, and he throws him into it face first. Africa was left behind in all the confusion. A minute or so later, when he got into the club, he told me it looked like a cowboy saloon, you know, like uh, broken glass, uh, water and fish going across the bar, and people screaming, and Latifa going, this is my party, you can't do this, and Bobby Brown's over there, and Wesley Snipes is over there, and, and the fire marshals are in there with their black and yellow jackets on, and have they got axes, and you know, fire extinguishers and people screaming on the floor above that, on the third floor. And it's like, ah! I was like, wow, it's nice in here, but it looks, it looks fucked up now. <laughs> and Chris was responsible, fucking up a big industry event and ruining Queen Latifah's birthday? Not smart, B. And it would make a mark on Chris in a couple of ways. Dan Charnas again. This was a very sobering moment for Chris because he's a beautiful guy. I mean, physically beautiful guy. And his vanity has now been shaken by the fact that he's going to have this scar, right? How bad is it going to be? That That's hard to deal with, right? The other part is the chaos that he created. And it was uh, after this that Lior took Chris aside and he says, you have to decide, do you want to be this guy or that guy? Do you want to be the guy who is the businessman, who sits in the office, who uh, goes out on tour, who handles things uh, and makes money in that way? Or do you want to be still involved in the street life, uh, in just petty street fights that mean nothing and get you nothing? And Chris decided that he wanted to be this guy. This guy. 
the guy who was all about being an executive, not throwing people through fish tanks. So he started a process of reinvention. God were his old ways and his old clothes. Here's Africa Baby Bam again. Oh, he completely changed up his dress clothes. Like, if you look on the back of the uh, 12-inch cover for what you're waiting for, Lighty's got red, black, and green hat and 40 below Timbo's on, like, you know, the street uniform. Then he transitioned into suits and trench coats, ties, mm. shirts, shoes. He reinvented himself a bit. But one of the hardest things Chris had to change was his old relationships. If he really wanted to be this guy, things would have to be different with the Violators. They could still be friends, but they couldn't be a crew anymore. That became clear when one of the original Violators, Chris Ali, came into some money. He wanted to take that money, almost a quarter of a million dollars, and go into business with Lighty. I went to Chris. I was like, yo, listen, we could start our own Violator business, blah, blah, blah. At that point, he was like, ah, that's no money. I was like, that's no money. Like, I'm from the project. That's some money for me, you know. That's some money for me. When he said that to me, it's like, that kind of took me back. But later on, when we sat down and we talked about it, at that point when it happened, I was like, oh, how can he do this to me? Blah, blah, blah. We could start our own business, blah, blah. You were pissed off. I was pissed off. And he said to me, he said, your money's not as long as Russell's money, Leo's money. Gradually, Chris began to pull away from all of his old street associates. He couldn't be this guy if he kept running with those guys. If you were to go back and talk to all my guys, they'll say there's a point where Chris disconnected from all of us. And I made the speech of, I'm disconnecting from you guys. But we're always going to be friends. You're always coming to my house, come whatever, but I can't do this anymore. I have to do that. Yeah, I understood. Where do you think you'd be today if Leo hadn't posed that? Uh, I, I wouldn't be here. You know, I wouldn't have an office, 14, 15 employees, you know, a couple of houses and whatever. I wouldn't be here. My mother, you know, wouldn't be where she's at. I wouldn't I'd either be in a jail, dead, or in a terrible place, you know. So in that moment, Lior changed your life? No question. That's why I have undying, sometimes very bad loyalty to Leo. Next week on Mogul, that loyalty is tested. You're definitely getting shot. You're next. You're, I might get hurt, but you're definitely getting hurt. There's no doubt you're getting her. New episodes of Mogul come out every Friday. Mogul is a production of Gimlet Media and the Loudspeakers Network. This episode was produced by Eric Eddings and Meg Driscoll with help from Isabella Kulkarni, Peter Bresnan, and Jonathan Mena. Our senior producer is Matthew Nelson. Our editors are Caitlin Kenny, Chris Morrow, and Lynn Levy. Lynn's the one you heard telling Red Alert he didn't need to be so polite when he was trying to explain to her what Jim Brownski means. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music direction by Matthew Bowl. This episode was scored by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk, with additional music by Bobby Lord and Haley Shaw. 
If you like what we're doing here, please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help new people find out about the show. Come on, B. Do it for the culture. You got internets? You got Twitter? Follow us for all the latest news and a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the show. Our handle is at Mogul. Until next time, continue to raise the bar.